I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. This episode, my conversation with Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower, one of the most successful solar companies of all time. Dick is a solar legend who's been working to make solar cheaper and better since the 1970s. There's even a law named after him, Swanson's Law, that describes how the cost of solar comes down as the volume of manufacturing expands. I talked with Dick about the scrappy early days of solar, his flirtations with bankruptcy, and his rules for building a strong business. Dick is one of the most genuine and humble people I know. To have him as our very first guest on What It Takes was an honor. This interview was recorded in 2017 on stage at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California. Our friend, venture investor Shale Khan, opened the event with a recap of Dick Swanson's career. So, uh, as all of you know, few companies survive the test of time. There's a stat that gets thrown around a lot in startup circles that only 4% of companies survive a decade. And that's true across all industries. Now, think about the solar industry. We've installed three quarters of all the solar that we have in the world in just the last five years. And if you think back a decade, two decades, three decades, this market, the solar market, has been marked by basically constant tumult. It's been subsidy dependent. It's had rapid technological innovation and evolution. It's had troubles with financing. It's had any number of reasons why markets have gone boom and bust, and indeed companies have gone boom and bust. And yet, more than 30 years ago, Dick Swanson, who's standing behind me, and hopefully will be blushing soon, founded a solar company um, that remains today one of the leaders in the field more than 30 years later. That is somewhat astounding in a market like solar. And just for context, in 1985, when Dick started working on SunPower, the cost of a solar panel was around $6.50 a watt. In total, the globe had shipped about 100 megawatts of solar panels, most of those panels going toward off-grid applications or marijuana farms in Mendocino County. Since then, the cost of a solar panel has fallen by about 92% down to about 50 cents a watt. And cumulative shipments, the amount of solar that we have shipped and subsequently installed globally, has grown by about 37,000%. I ran that number in my computer this morning, and then I checked it a couple times to make sure I wasn't off by an order of magnitude or two, but it is indeed 37,000% growth since the time that SunPower was initially conceptualized. And perhaps most amazingly about that whole time period is that SunPower's DNA, the core of what it does, actually hasn't changed a whole lot over that whole time. SunPower was built on the idea of selling really high-efficiency, high-quality solar panels. And basically, since its inception, has been commercializing, selling, and shipping the highest-efficiency solar panels that are available on the market. That remains true today. But... As time has passed, SunPower has also broadened its horizons to go along with the broadening of the solar market. And today, SunPower is one of the very few companies that can realistically claim that it is active across the entirety of the solar sector. So this means SunPower is active from small-scale residential solar all the way up through grid-scale, ground-mounted utility-scale installations in the Mojave Desert. SunPower is active globally. They're active in Oakland, but they're active in Japan. They're active on the sales side and the technology side, but they also do project development. They do solar, but increasingly, they also are involved in the adjacent industries that are starting to creep into the solar world as solar penetration grows. So SunPower has activity in energy storage and demand response, in home energy management and virtual power plants and all the things that are starting to come together to converge as this energy ecosystem develops. Back to Dick. In addition to founding SunPower, one of Dick's claims to fame is that he was the inspiration for what is called Swanson's Law. For you semiconductor people in the room, you may be familiar with Moore's Law. This is a takeoff on Moore's Law. And Swanson's Law observes that for every doubling of cumulative shipments of solar, the cost of a solar panel on the open market falls by about 20%. And 
strangely enough, much to the chagrin of analysts like myself and my team who spend a ridiculous amount of time and effort building fancy models to try to figure out where the price of solar is going, Swanson law, Swanson's law basically works. <laughs> so Dick's story is uh, one of longevity in an industry that generally does not support that. It's a story of entrepreneurship, um, but it's also a story of the birth of an industry that is now hitting scale and which we anticipate is going to see about $3 trillion of investment over the next two decades. This is now a big market, and SunPower was a big part of making this market happen. One could easily make the case that there's no other person who's had such a front seat view of the entire growth and development of the solar market over the past 30 years. And so I personally am really excited to hear his story about what it takes to build a solar company. So with no further ado, I'll hand it over to Emily Kirsch, who's the eminently capable CEO and founder of Powerhouse and Dick Swanson. All right. Welcome to the inaugural and sold out what it takes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO here at Powerhouse. And I'm thrilled to have you here tonight, Dick Swanson. Uh, the personal stories of clean energy luminaries are rarely told. At the conferences we go to, we may hear about the latest technologies from the companies that they have built, but it's really easy to lose sight of the human catalysts behind innovation. And in the case of industry giant and pioneer SunPower, the catalyst behind the company is Dick Swanson. So thank you so much for being here tonight. <laughs> Dick, you grew up in Columbus, Ohio. You're the son of a botanist. Tell us what it was like growing up in Columbus and what you were like. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, after Shale's introduction, sure. I feel like I could only screw it up. Oh, you no, know? impossible. So why don't we just go to Q&A right now? Huh? <laughs> See, I, I like, uh, I like okay. the innovation. But All yeah, right. tell us about growing up in Columbus, Ohio, and more importantly, what you were like before the age of 18. <clears throat> Do you know what... The word nerd means? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I was the inspiration for the concept of, of, of nerd. So I did model airplanes, ham radio. Uh, the, um, one of the sort of, as I tried to break out of nerddom, I decided I should become a, uh, a race car driver. Yeah. And uh, this was after seeing a movie about it and uh, with... Uh, uh, who was it? I don't know. Anyway, um, so I decided to build a race car. You, at that time, you had to uh, be 21 to go to driver's school, which was required to get your SCCA license, and uh, you had to have your own car. But I didn't have a car, so I had to build a race car, which, um, which I did, and it was a tremendous experience. Uh, so uh, I think all of those sort of useful experiences were really helpful to me in my career. I eventually wised up and didn't become a race car driver. But, um, and, and I'm so excited to see today this rise of the maker movement because I had, I, that what wasn't really happening for a long time. And I thought, you know, young people today are missing the kind of things that I did, uh, working on cars and radios and stuff like that. And, and now it's coming back. So, uh, so that's heartening to see. Great. You went to College of Worcester, a small liberal arts Presbyterian college, but you didn't have the patience for your first testament classes. Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, so, well, at Worcester, you had to take religion. And uh, in the first semester, you took history of the Old Testament. And in the second semester, you took history of the New Testament. And you had to take those. And I flunked the history of the Old Testament. So um, I just... I just couldn't get into memorizing all the kings of Israel and reciting them. So uh, I had to take it again, and I was flunking it again. And so I, you know, that's one of those projections that you use in business. You know, you sort of say, this projection is bad. <laughs> so I split. Gotcha. Yeah. And at 18, is it true that you attempted to start your career by cleaning dirt off of oil drills, but you yeah, couldn't? Yeah, so for I, some did, I hitchhiked around the country looking for work, and I did end up in an oil field. Uh, but um, 
the it had been raining, and uh, the, the entry level job is to clean the mud off the drill bit. So they said uh, you'd have to come back, and I eventually got another job. But uh, it was a seminal experience because it, it, this oil find was in a small town, and the town basically went crazy. And everyone, people knocked their houses down to put oil drilling rigs on their property. Uh, and uh, then it turns out that oil companies made a mistake. And uh, they said, we're sorry, there's no oil here. And uh, packed up and went back to Oklahoma. Uh, it, it was called the Mount Gilead oil strike. And it, you know, I, I subsequently ran into somebody in, from the oil industry, and I mentioned it thinking he wouldn't know about that. And he got this huge, horrible affect. Uh, he said, oh, my God, that's the biggest black mark on the industry ever. Mm-hmm. They basically destroyed this little town and then packed up and, and left. Gotcha. Yeah. So you, you eventually went to Ohio State right, University right, to right. study electrical engineering and then made right. the transition to Stanford. Tell right. us about making that transition. Right, right. Uh, yeah. So I finally realized I was born an engineer, had to be an engineer, uh, went back to Ohio State with my tail fixed my legs and said, show me how to use a slide roll. And, and uh, you know, but, but I did find that my, my background in, uh, in mechanical and electrical things was a huge leg up against uh, a lot of the other engineer students. And uh, so then uh, I'd never even heard of Stanford at the time, but uh, we had a textbook written by a professor at Stanford. And uh, I thought, this is the best textbook ever. Where's Stanford? And uh, so I applied and, and got in. So that, and so they call that, uh, I was born, this was in Columbus, Ohio, where I was born and raised. Yeah. yeah and that's when the movie Goodbye Columbus came out. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so these days, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, people get married and have kids really late. Um, you got married at 20, which required something unique. Yeah, right. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, yeah, my mother had to sign the, for the marriage certificate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then at 22, you had two kids. And as you're yeah. making the transition to start your solar cell research, right, right. So parent. I was living in Escondido Village at Stanford, which is the married student housing. And to this day, I think it's a wonderful layout where all the houses are in a circle, and the kids can play in the common area out there. Uh, it, you know, I, I've often thought this is, makes a perfect model, sort of anti-suburbia, you know, uh, soccer mom with their Volvo driving kids around kind of thing. It's the perfect uh, antidote to that. And I'm so sad that it's not uh, copied more because uh, it was a great, great place to raise kids. I was a single parent at the time. So, yeah. And what was it like being a single parent while you were starting your solar cell research at Stanford? That's fine. I'm- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, what was your main motivation at the time to start the research? Okay, well, I was finishing my PhD. I was in the microelectronics area, chips, you know, if you will. And um, I, uh, they were supposed to push and a pull. On the push side, I got the feeling that the chip industry was maturing and the sort of excitement of the early pioneering days was waning. And so that kind of bothered me. I, I was kind of wrong about that because this is totally pre-VLSI, pre-Pentium chip. You know, we had no idea at the time what a huge impact chips would make. Nevertheless, I'm glad I didn't stick with that industry. But, uh, but I, uh, then the oil crisis came in 73, and, uh, you know, we were all standing in line, sometimes over an hour, so it gave one a lot of time to think, and uh, it sort of seemed like this was the first time in in, um, the country's history where energy really started to be on the forefront of people's thinking, you know, prior to that, it was just you plug your toaster into the wall, stick the toast in, and it goes, you know, and people were first starting to think about, gee, where does this come from? What does it mean? And uh, uh, and the motivation, interestingly, was uh, this, nobody was talking about global warming to any degree. It was, we were going to run out of oil. So there was a, a huge uh, rush to sort of come up with another energy source to replace oil and coal, which we were surely going to run out of, uh, it turns out that, and, and, and there was a concern about nuclear at the time, too, uh, and that nuclear was too dangerous, uh, you know, which, both of which turned out to be totally 
bogus, but those were the reasons. I mean, you know, you look today, uh, nuclear's certainly been responsible for far fewer deaths than coal in history, which, according to the World Health Organization, kills over a million people a year uh, from pollution, let alone mine disasters. And, uh, and we didn't run out of oil. Uh, we didn't run out of fossil fuels. In fact, we found enough that we can fry the planet. So, okay, that's <laughs> what, where we ended up and, and why we continue. Uh, I mean, I, I think if it were uh, not for global warming concerns, carbon dioxide emission concerns, there'd be almost no point to PV. You know, you just mm-hmm. get 200 years of natural gas or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. go for it, right? And did you think that your research would become a business when you were starting? Not really, um, but there was kind of it was kind of in the air at Stanford uh, that you know. In fact, I would say I, I joined the faculty in in seventy five and uh, uh, started doing research. And uh, there was maybe it was in my mind, but I got the feeling that there was a, a uh, an impression that if you were a faculty member and you didn't start a company, there was something seriously wrong in the head. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, so it was in the air. Um, in fact, I started uh, SunPower essentially in parallel with Jim Clark, who uh, uh, he won. I, but uh, you know, uh, who did you start it with? Jim Clark. Oh, no, no, oh, no, oh, that person. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, it was it, so okay. So the the starting team when we when we first started out, I was going to stay at Stanford, and uh, so. Um, I had a longtime technician engineer in my lab that sort of built the equipment that we made our solar cells on, and uh, he was my co-partner in the whole thing. And then I had uh, students who had some of them had graduated, but said, you know, when you it was in the air, if you start a company, give me a call, I'll come back. Uh, and uh, so we ended up with uh, with a group of uh, my technician Dick Crane. Uh, my students that came back were Ron Sinton, Pierre Verlinden, and Rich King, and Andres Cuevas. And uh, uh, one of the proudest things for me is that uh, they've all won the uh, Cherry Award in the, or the Becquerel Prize, the highest award in, in PV. Uh, and so that, you know, I feel a real sense of pride in, uh, in that aspect. <clears throat> Um, when SunPower, when you were getting your start, you had a different name. Tell us about oh, yeah. tell us about the name, and then the okay. process of changing that. Right, name. right. That was kind of interesting. We, so, of course, um, we started thinking about the name, and I thought, well, it should maybe be sort of like Greek goddess or god, you know. And went through. Turns out, every conceivable god, whether it's Egyptian uh, or Greek or Roman, that had anything to do with solar was already taken, right? And so we decided to uh, go with the goddess, the goddess of the moon, Eos. And uh, the thinking was that it was, her job was to bring the sun out every morning from the heavens. Uh, and uh, so we went with Eos. And um, like the canon copied this name, I mean, you know, I, we should suit him. But anyway... Um, the uh, in fact they copied the the font. No way. No, it, I, I can prove it. <laughs> the business cards. I know some I, great lawyers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so then I brought in. I finally realized I needed some business help. Uh, you know, because when I started the company, I didn't really know what business people did. I, my my family was not in business. My father was a faculty also, and uh, I couldn't think what a business person does. I mean, it's like. What do you do all day? <laughs> I, I, I knew what engineers did. They did everything important, right? So, uh, so then, so I, I couldn't figure out what, what you know, I, the only thing I was sure business people did is play golf. That was, <laughs> and I didn't play golf. So, uh, so we brought in a business guy, and uh, uh, he took one look at EOS, and he said, that's a horrible, snobbish, effete name. And uh, so we got to change it, and we brainstormed, and we came up with SunPower, which was, I mean, he earned his keep right there. <laughs> I mean, talk about a perfect branding name uh, to have gotten. Um, where did your initial capital come from, and how much did it take to get started? 
Okay, so uh, this will, if you're involved in startups today, this will make you a little ill. But um, we, uh, our uh, Series A uh, round was $800,000. We also complemented that with two R&D contracts, one from EPRI, Electric Power Research Institute, one from U.S. Department of Energy. And so we had those three two contracts and the, and the venture capital capitalists. We eventually did a Series B about a year later, raised about another 800000 um, By the time we sold the company, uh, we had a total uh, equity investment of about $10 million. But that included uh, Honda Motor Company, which came in and put a substantial amount in. And uh, then we had another like five hundred thousand, uh, five million in convertible notes of various kinds. So, th- you could say that the total uh, funding was on the order of uh, fifteen million. Not a lot in today's. No, standard. I mean it's not even a you know it's like a, a Series A round that you feel kind of embarrassed about. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, what did Epri say when you told them you wanted to make the move from research <laughs> to starting the business? Well, they were uh, they didn't. I guess. Since, you know, young people, they say something like grocket. Uh, it, it didn't really compute uh, very well. I, I, uh, you know, they were just kind of like big eyes staring like, you are a professor. Go back to your laboratory. And, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, but, but the thing, that, the comment that, got, that stuck with me the most is one, my project manager, his boss actually, looked at me and said, you can't start a company. Who's going to write the purchase orders? You know, and I went, oh, my God, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I don't know who's, you know. And, and, but it, it's really illustrative, I think, if you look back, if you're, if you're entrepreneurial-oriented, um, you're not really going to worry about how to write a purchase order, you know. And, and I realized that he came from uh, General Electric, right? which had a room, you know, the size of a Pentagon to write purchase orders. Uh, so his, his image was, my God, you know, how are you going to do that? So, yeah. Um, you, you got laughed at by some VCs because of your financial model. Oh, you yeah. Tell, tell us why. Uh, okay. So um, we knew that um, it was going to be a long haul uh, and take a while, right, to uh, really blossom out. And uh, so we... We ran our uh, pro forma financials through the year 2000. So this was in 1985. So 15 columns, <laughs> you know, you know, revenue, you know, 50,000, 60,000, you know. Then we get out to year 2000 and it's starting to take. But look, it's going to hockey stick, you know. And uh, uh, so uh, this wasn't well received within the financial community at the time. But the uh, but the the funniest incident was um, I probably should leave his name but uh, he, he, was, he was a funny guy and uh, he uh, he said uh, he said to my partner Lorenzini he said he said Lorenzini this is the first business plan I've ever seen with the year 2000 in it uh, he, says, he says do you know how old I'm going to be <laughs> <laughs> And then he assumed this, like, little old man uh, affect, and kind of he comes over and he goes, Lorenzini, <laughs> tell me how much money did we make? He didn't invest. <laughs> Actually, he wanted to, but his partner, you know, they operate on a unanimous yeah. system, and his partners didn't. I'm sure they regretted it after uh, the IPO. <laughs> I've had a lot of a lot of those discussions with people. Yeah. Um, what? <laughs> how, how did those discussions make you feel? <laughs> Lucky. Yeah. Um, what was the industry like at this stage when you were just getting started? Well, it was uh, it was starting to be a real industry. It was um, there were. Private companies then, commercial companies, uh, you know, uh, there were the first sort of founding companies doing terrestrial PV, which was uh, Solar Technologies International, which became Arco Solar. Arco was the leader at that time. There was uh, SolarX, and uh, and uh, there was another one, Solar Power Corporation, which had subsequently was sold to Exxon, which 
crushed it, but that, that's a difference. We don't want to get on too many tangents here, do we? So, um, <clears throat> but those were the three companies, and um, they were doing stuff. But the, the market for, for Arco was all, I, I know you've heard this, I'm sure, it was all marijuana farmers, right? And so that was sort of supporting them. Uh, there was some panels for uh, offshore oil rigs and some uh, mountaintop repeater station market. Uh, what my first um, solar conference I went to uh, was in 75, and, or 73, and I remember one of, the, one of the talks was from Sharp. Sharp is actually making panels all along. They were really the leader, the first in, the, in this. And um, the talk was on a panel to put on a, a Coast Guard navigational aid to keep the light going, you know? And the problem was that, uh, that, that seagulls would sit on it and leave deposits. Right? <laughs> so they put little wires sticking up all around the panel, and there was a whole talk on how to put the wires up to keep seagulls off. And I was thinking, wait a minute. I'm going to devote the rest of my life to this field. You know, was like, I was like, I was, oh, this is the keynote thing. It's uh, little pointy things to keep seagulls off. But, uh, I, but uh, yeah, but that was the market. And, you know, and when, when people discovered you could put them on cabooses to run the light on the back of the train, that was huge. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, it sort of kept going that way. I, if you fast forward a few years... When, when they put in the, uh, the call boxes along the freeway, they had PV panels. That was one of the first really... And I, I remember, I, I, every time I saw those things, I went, we should have had that order. We should have had that order. <laughs> that was Would huge. They don't even exist anymore. I don't yeah. know if you've noticed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so as you're starting the business, how did you know how to do this? You were coming from academia. Run the company. <laughs> run the business. Oh, well... Uh, Run the company, run the business. Um, well, you 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 have meetings, <laughs> <laughs> and then you decide what to do. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, it, I I think it's it's stuff that um, you bring to it from starting before kindergarten. You know, uh, and sort of how to get along with people, and how to you know how to get done. I mean. Uh, I mean, my and sharing each other's weaknesses. One of my big weaknesses was um, always was even in kindergarten was procrastination. So, you know, I would try to have people help me with that. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's innate. I think you know the, the, the you know what what I did. I when I realized I didn't know anything about it, I thought, okay, what do you do? Yeah, I subscribed to Fortune magazine. Right? Okay, that was useless. I read um, I read books about entrepreneurs uh, and how they started. You know, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford. Uh, that was useless. I mean, doesn't really help you to know. And you know, and usually they were kind of scary because they were doing nefarious things. You know, and it didn't want to do that. Uh, I don't know if you ever read about uh, Thomas Watson, for example, who started IBM. It's like, oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> his, this is a shunt, but uh, he worked for NCR, and his job was to go to small towns in, in the Midwest and set up cash register repair stores um, because mechanical cash registers the NCR made broke down all the time, and, and so each town got its cash register repair people, and they put in front stores to drive them all out of business that was owned by NCR. I mean, half of the laws in the Securities and Exchange Commission rule book come from wow. these things that were going on back then. So yeah. uh, anyway, that wasn't very inspirational. Um, <laughs> so the question, so I don't know. Figured it out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think another thing that's useless is books written by professors about how to do business. <laughs> you know? I mean, things like... like these guys have, there's a few good ones, uh, but, um, which you could ask me about, but most of them uh, are, are, are useless. I, you just do it, that's all. Yeah, just yeah. do it. That's right. In fact, that's been trademarked. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, you, were you paying yourself at the time? Were you taking a salary? Was the initial staff taking a salary? Uh, we did, yeah, because we had their, um, you know, our first round uh, when we really got got started. Uh, we we paid ourselves till the money ran out. Did the money run out? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell Several us, times. Tell us about that, because my next question is, what were your darkest moments? <laughs> oh, those were definitely. We we uh, one time I got into an argument with one of the uh, old time SunPower people about how whether we had five layoffs or six. And uh, I counted five and she counted six. But uh, um, we, you know, we, we went through horrible ups and downs. And, uh, and it was really, really, really uh, stressful. But uh, it was also, in SunPower lore, it was very um, sort of um, uplifting in a way. Um, because um, unbeknownst to me, for example, when we couldn't meet payroll, our our uh, operators, the people that made the cells, got a job at Micron, which was uh, a Micrell, which was a um, chip company next door, and uh, and they after the Micrell shift, they would come in, not check, no, not punch in and run the fab. Wow! Free. Wow! They were coming in. So. Without they were getting paid by someone else. Well, they were they were they were doing the work there, but afterwards they were coming in and doing a second job at SunPower without wow. telling me. I, the supervisors knew it, but you, but you didn't know that they I didn't were coming know it in afterwards. after their other job. Yeah, right, I didn't know it till years later. They, wow, when I found out about it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did you ever talk to them about why they did it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it was. Uh, I think we had just set a, a team that you know, and everybody believed in it. I mean, one of the things about being in this field is that it's easy to create a vision that's compelling. You know, if um, it's a lot harder to create a compelling vision if you if you're opening a laundromat, right? Uh, you know, we're going to have the highest uptime wash machines, and you know, or something <laughs> like that. Well, you know, it it it, it attracted people who got. Um, you know, really immersed in the vision and the hope of the whole thing, and they wanted it to uh, to succeed. How important was it to you at that time to build the kind of culture where people would come in without telling you to work for free? Well, I, I didn't know I was doing that. How do you do uh, that? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, we you know we had, uh, uh, for example, we subsisted uh, for a long time by building other things. A lot of people don't know this, but uh, when the market didn't come along. Um, for us, we were, by the way, we were founded to do concentrating PV, CPV, as it's known, to the investment community today, uh, which means stay away. But um, it was uh, concentrating PV, and that market just didn't happen. And uh, so we were forced to build a lot of other things, and so we ran the fab. We built uh, barcode readers for cash registers. Uh, we built uh, we had built part of uh, International Rectifier's uh, product line out of our fab and uh, kept it running that way. We built a, an, an optical retina that was inserted in people's eyes that was, that was very inspirational for the staff to be doing that. Unfortunately, they dissolved in the eye, so it didn't, uh, wasn't a long-term project, but uh, we were the... We were the supplier to General Electric uh, for their CAT scanners, for the detectors in the detector arrays. And so, so we had this, uh, this business, and, and I, would, I would attract young engineers to work on solar cells and uh, get them all pumped up and then say, but for now, <laughs> I want you to work on this diode for international rectifier. You know, was like, I, I felt kind of like I was doing a bait and switch, but it worked, so I'm not... <laughs> All right, so bait, it takes, bait and switch is what it takes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you do anything you can. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, right. Were there moments that you thought you were going to have to close the doors? Oh, and yeah. If so yeah. how often, how many times did you think, really, you were going to lay everyone off and walk away? Uh, there were... I mean, we were at death's door three or four times, um, and I was trying to decide whether I'd move into my son's basement uh, or... <laughs> What? Uh, Usually it's the other way around. Of course, yeah. I mean, but the story that everybody hears that hangs around and listens to these things, of course, was when T.J. Rogers came and bailed us out. And uh, that, was, that was the last time we needed bailing out. Um, and uh, we were looking for investors. Elon Musk had come by, uh, and he, he said that uh, we weren't thinking big enough. Uh, 
and now I know what he meant. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, we, we were... We had, been, we had had this, all the senior officers in the company had signed an agreement to work for free uh, with the directors. And uh, we, <clears throat> so um, he walked in, I told him about it, and he, uh, he said, how much do you need? And I said, well, we need 750000 to make it through payroll. And he wrote a check. Wow. Right wow. there. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, that's kind of in Silicon Valley lore now, that, that story, but yeah. And is it that, happened. are those moments what allowed you to stick with it? Like what oh, yeah. kept you there when you thought you'd have to shut everything down? Well, it didn't happen. I mean, obviously we made it. Um, it just was, you know, nip and tuck at every time. Yeah. Um, what came easily to you for all the things that were difficult about the business? What came easily? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the easiest part is the technology. Um, partly because I'm a technologist and that's kind of what I do, but uh, also because it's more, um, uh, what I want to say, deterministic or something. You know, you do this, you do that, you make this experiment, you decide that, da, da, da. and it's kind of, in that regard, straightforward and simple, you know, whereas, you know, the uh, team, you know, cohesiveness and uh, so-and-so is upset because uh, somebody else is not speaking to them and they're going to quit unless you, yada, yada, you know, all of that kind of stuff uh, turns out to be a lot harder uh, in the end to, to, to deal with. And, and figuring out the market exactly, you know, uh, that's hard. Um, um, sort of getting, uh, starting to understand how you need to really um, work with customers very closely, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Those are, those are much harder than just developing a widget, in my view. Mm-hmm. What lesson was the hardest to learn? The hardest to learn? Wow. Um, hmm. That's a good... The very hardest? <laughs> Is that a fair question? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh... <laughs> Then I'll have to answer it. The very the, um, the very hardest was uh, to um, get up in the morning and keep going, you know, and face everybody when they knew that that things were dire, uh, you know. And what do you say? And, you know, we're uh, we're gonna. We're going to make it, um, but we, you know, I, I had one one experience that that, that uh, was really important to me. Um, when we had one of our layoffs, one of the operators came up to me, and she gave me a um, an angel named Priscilla, and she said, "This angel will protect you," and she did. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she's still she's had a a major place at SunPower. Yeah? yeah? Do you still have She's, it? Uh, yeah, it's in my yeah. office, no looking way. over. Yeah. Nice. Um, do you have mentors, or did you at the time that you were building yeah. SunPower? I mean, kind of. Um, I had, uh, I, I think our investors were my first real mentors, um, and they were wonderful. Uh, uh, they... Uh, uh, Gene Flath, for example, was one of the very early hires at Intel, and he had been responsible for a lot of their fabs. And and, uh, so he had a real been there, done that, knows that things don't always go right, you know. Uh, He he, he was back when the venture capital community was filled with people with real operational backgrounds. And uh, so they, they could mentor you, right? Uh, and and so he and uh, and Tom Toy, who was our other venture capital uh, fa- capitalist, uh, were very supportive and very helpful. They could have pulled the plug on SunPower any day, you know. Just we're tired of you, Swanson, you know. So, um, but they didn't, and uh, and uh, you know, and then uh, in, in a way, T.J. Rogers was a mentor for me too, uh, because. Uh, he has a whole different sort of uh, worldview about how things go on that was quite different than my uh, liberal touchy-feely, uh, you know, sort of view. Uh, and that was useful to bump, rub shoulders with and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I would say those three 
How do you feel about venture capital today? Is it the same as what it was when you had access to it? I don't know. Uh, from what little I see, I think it looks quite different. I mean, for one thing, the, uh, the funds are much larger. And uh, the flip side of that is they've got to do big deals. Uh, and um, uh, But, uh, you know, my sort of anecdotal feeling is that uh, there was a period, um, I want to say, in the mid-'90s when venture capital started to become, you know, everybody knew what it meant. You know, it became part of the lexicon. A lot of people uh, said, hey, I are one, you know, and signed up to be a venture capitalist. And um, uh, it turned out out it was a lot harder than most people thought, I think. Uh, I mean, we saw a lot of firms come and go. And and, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things you really need that, um, that sort of sixth sense to really pick up uh, and and you need to you know I think venture capitalists fall into kind of two categories one thinks that the team is the most important and the chemistry of the team and the integrity of the team and the other thinks that the market and the technology are more important and uh, the ones who think the team is the most important they're in my camp because it, if things don't go right they'll figure out what to do whereas if the other group, but things don't go right, the, the whole team, he blows up. Right. So, uh, um, the, the, you know, but, but I think venture capitalists fall in either of those two camps. The, um, uh, but, you know, I, I, I read green tech media stuff, and uh, so that's my <laughs> current, uh, I could say a lot of things about venture capitalists that I won't. That you won't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably, probably wise. There's a few in the audience tonight. Um, as far as the team and, and focusing on the team and investing in the team, did you feel like you always had the right team? Were there times when you oh, felt no. like the team needed to drastically change? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we did end up making considerable changes in the team. Uh, and um, uh, I mean, but part of the problem was when we started, everybody in the company uh, was from academia. Nobody had ever had a real job. I mean, my only real job was, uh, you know, building boxes when I did. I turned down to pull the mud off of drill bits, right? Um, so, um, and, and, you know, I think one of the lessons I learned from that whole experience going through it is if I ever became a venture capitalist, I would think long and hard about funding a professor. I mean, I mean <laughs> these guys are just in the clouds. I mean, you know, that, that's the impression that people have. It's true, right? I mean, it, it, you know, and, and, and they tend to think that, that things like uh, uh, making a million solar cells uh, after the process uh, flow has been worked out is sort of an exercise for the student, you know, sort of like, go, go make a million now, you know, with no appreciation for what that really means, you know, and... and uh, and so we were a bunch of academics, so uh, we got a little bit, uh, you know, we, you know, so I had, you know, I, well, it's, you know, I'm the only one that survived the company. Wow. Of the initial, oh, of yeah. the founding team, right. all academics. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still Although touch? some of them did very well. Pierre Verlinden, for example, is CTO of Trina, which is the largest solar company in the world. Oh, wow. Right. right. Um, are you still in touch with everyone from oh, the yeah. founding team? Oh, absolutely. Are you still friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Ron Ron Sinton, um, Ron Sinton Instruments, whose instruments are in every fab, uh, every solar cell fab on the planet. Wow! Right. Um, tell us about the acquisition of Powerlight in two thousand and six, and tell us about the Powerlight team. Well, uh, the Powerlight team. But you know, I mean, you mean because they had the egg? You mean? Oh, the office. <laughs> They had the, they had this, this Zen meditation center, right? Uh-huh. Um, that was you know that was my first introduction to uh, to Power Light. Um, they had, uh, you know, I, w- I was saying there were bean bag chairs. You know, this kind of like full circle because uh, the first talk I ever gave was at Xerox Park, and I think in 1973, uh, wasn't on solar, and um, the, the whole auditorium. I don't know if you've been there recently, but it's a big fancy auditorium. It was all full of beanbag chairs. Nice. We're just trying to replicate <laughs> yeah, that here. Know, right. This is like, you know, full circle. How many years ago is that? But uh, uh, what was Power the Powerlight team? Powerlight team. Yeah. So, I mean, we had known 
the Powerlight team for years. Uh, I knew Dan Sugar uh, when he was at PG&E, for example, and uh, he did some of the seminal work on the value of distributed resources on the grid. And uh, uh, so we had, you know, and, and he was involved in helping fund uh, through the PG&E uh, Partners Program, fund my research at Stanford, and, and uh, so we had a long relationship, and, and they became one of our major customers. Uh, they um, really understood the value of efficiency more than uh, most uh, most customers at that time. At that time, efficiency, all the panels were about the same. And, uh, and in fact, um, when I first introduced our first panel, I went to the Rome conference, uh, and I was talking to people, and I said, you know, we've got this new high-efficiency panel. You're going to love it. And uh, one of the system, one of the buyers said, I... I prefer low efficiency panels. And I go, what? <laughs> what? And it turns out that I, what he was thinking of is that Shell at the time was one of his major suppliers, sold the same panel with different, you know, they'd come out with different efficiencies on sort of a distribution. And the most efficient ones that tested out, they get more money for. And the lesser efficient ones, they'd sell cheaper. And he had worked out that it was the poorer panels that were the better deals. So he's not going to buy our panels, you know, they're, they're way too efficient. And, um, uh, so it took a, a lot of education, but Powerlight was the uh, you know really the, the leader in in becoming a major SunPower customer, and uh, so uh, we had this long long term relationship. And and uh, when SunPower started feeling that they would be useful to move downstream from the panel making, I mean, it was just a natural. I mean, you know, I, you know, I think it worked out. Fabulously, uh, in my view, um, the, the the you know partly because they are from Berkeley, right? mm-hmm. uh, and so they were cool. But um, <laughs> but you know there was just a they're just a great uh, great group worked worked out fabulously. And tell us about the IPO, especially at the twelfth hour. It sounds like you had to pull. Oh uh, yeah, pull that was the offer. that was interesting. The, yeah, the um, so when we when uh, TJ said he's going to take his public, and um, he, he was good to that. And uh, uh, he, he had Wall Street, you know, kind of in his hands a little bit. And so uh, we got investment bankers involved. And uh, there had been no uh, solar IPOs uh, on the U.S. exchanges at that time. And, and so the bankers were very, very skeptical. I mean, you, you never saw so much like, oh, my God, you know solar company, you know, I don't think I can sell this, and yada, 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 and uh, there had only been a couple of comparables. There was energy conversion devices and Astropower, neither of which were, you know, good examples for us, and, and um, there had been some on the European stocks, on the Frankfurt Exchange, uh, Solar Fabrique, and so uh, kind of based it on that, and, but they were very uh, skeptical about being able to sell it. So uh, after when we filed S1, they put a price on it that, was, uh, that they were, thought they might be able to get close to. But uh, so when the roadshow started actually in Germany, um, the first morning they realized they could sell it for twice that, you know, right there in that room, the whole offering. And uh, so the bankers are just like going, oh, my God, you know, how did we miss this? And they didn't realize there was such an appetite for clean tech that had boiled up in Europe, totally missed in the United States at that time. And uh, so there, was a, there, were, there were rules about how much you can adjust the sales price uh, on, a, on a filed uh, S1, and so um, we couldn't double it, so we withdrew it and did it overnight, refiled with the SEC the next day uh, at twice the price, and uh, it sold way above that price even. So the investment bankers are just going, whoa, this is, this is something. And, and it, was, um, it was a tremendous time for me uh, personally. I mean, I, I, I still remember at the uh, uh, CSFB trading desk in the morning that trading started, and they have this um, uh, billboard that goes up. I don't know if you've been to Google and you can see all the searches going across. Well, uh, it was like that, all the orders coming in. And uh, 
It started, it lit up, it opening, market opening, and, and like half of them were SPWR, SPWR, SPWR. You know, this is the, I mean, this was on the NASDAQ. So it, it just caught everybody completely by surprise. Yeah, it was fun. Speaking of surprises, we're going to move into the high voltage round. It's like Uh-oh. a lightning round. Um, so question one, what is your spirit animal and why? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> My spirit animal. You mean like I'm a clan of the bear or uh, something like that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, really, uh, I really like penguins. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I, I, in, in fact, people know that, so they give me penguins, so I have, like, a lot of penguins, I mean, stuffed penguins. Yeah, and, and <laughs> not real penguins. <laughs> stuff like, did you ever see um, a March of the... I did, that was an amazing was movie. Was that amazing? I think I cried. Oh, 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 I did too, so oh, good. I'm a penguin lover. Okay. I, yeah. I, I don't like the projectile uh, thing they do. I'm not sure I'm familiar, but let's move on. on. Because, you know. <laughs> right, anyway. um, what have you found consistently most inspiring? What? Say that again? What have you found consistently most inspiring? About? What inspires you most consistently? Oh, oh. Uh, what inspires? I think um, sort of academically what inspires me these days is um, history and um the classics. Uh, I, uh, I have a friend and I. We, we he moved away, but we have uh, Skype drinking parties together, and and we have homework. And uh, right now we're doing uh, the Stoics, which is uh, very interesting. I, I don't know if you've ever studied Stoicism, but uh, it's kind of like Buddhism, but without the incense, or, you know, in a way. It, it's uh, very very interesting. So we I like doing that. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, well, I, 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 I can, that one's an easy one. <laughs> I think uh, we are at the most amazing cusp in uh, change in the energy field. And I, I see a lot of young people that are thinking of getting into the field or are in the field, and they're saying, gee, you know, it's too late to do a PV company, uh, which is probably true. Uh, so what am I going to do? And from my perspective... We're right in the middle of this huge chaotic transition where the opportunities are just incredible. I mean, we are watching the historic paradigm of our uh, utility industry that was, you know, set during Thomas Edison's era, how it completely unravel. And, um, and it's driven by a whole bunch of sort of macro forces you know, not the least of which is carbon emissions, but, uh, you know, technology threats and, uh, and the fact that demand is not growing anymore in the industry and yada, it just goes on and on. But the upshot of it is that this cauldron is creating huge opportunities, I think. Um, I mean, wh- what's going to come out at the end? Nobody knows, but um, I think it's people like you that are going to determine that, basically. So I, I think you're just at the perfect right time. Finish these sentences for me. Oh, God. <laughs> this, do you Com- have the music, background music or anything? <laughs> DJ Sunderland. Uh, Companies fail because? Uh, uh, arrogance on the part of the founders. Success is? Success is um, making a contribution to our civilization. My biggest regret is? Uh, not learning how to avoid procrastinating. <laughs> I'm most proud of. Uh, I'm most proud of the team we we put together and what they did. Yeah. And the last question for tonight is: What it takes is? Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> stubbornness. I, I think got, it, I have that. <laughs> yes, I thought so. Uh, <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I think. <laughs> That's exactly what my wife said, uh, <laughs> you know, when I was talking to her. She said, well, just tell him how stubborn you were. <laughs> it works. Yeah. You're not, you know, okay. So we didn't uh, make that payment, uh, and the uh, supplier is very mad, and um, the uh, prototype burned up, but we're going ahead. You know, that's stubbornness. 
Let's move into questions. It is a little bit past 7.30. If anyone needs to go, feel free to do so. If you want to stick around for another five minutes or so, we can do a couple questions. Um, if you do have a question, um, uh, uh, Alex can, can point to you and just raise your hand. Alex will point to you. I'll repeat the questions so that we can get it recorded. Um, and why don't we take a couple questions at once and then you can kind of shift through those that you want to answer okay. and we'll see if there's right, right. themes. Any questions? I'm in a startup in hardware, and having come from startups in data energy where they give you a check as soon as you say predictive analytics, mm. what's your advice for those of us who are still trying to improve the hardware side of solar? And before you answer it, let's, take, let's see if okay. there's any other questions. Uh, when the market was really starting to boom exponentially fast, what did it take for you to stay the course in a more reasonable rate? I'm talking about 2008, Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll take one more if there's a final question. Julian, I see you. Yeah. Well, so you're, when you're talking about the, the challenge of selling to a market that didn't really exist mm -hmm. yet, mm -hmm. um, it sounds like there's some parallels to storage now where mm -hmm. we have – you know, this great technology, but right. you know, the market for right. it is right. still very small. Right. I'm curious if you had learnings from that experience yeah. that you could apply to that industry. Yeah. You know, I, well, first place, I think it's the place you want to be. Uh, you know, I, I found that I, I really like uh, that quote that every, I don't know if he really said it, but it's attributed to Wayne Gretzky. When they asked him how he played such great hockey, he said, I skate to where that puck is going to be, not where it is. So I think... In a, you know, it's perfect thing to skate. It's not dumb. You know, this is smart to do this and figure out. Uh, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's important to be talking to customers uh, as much as possible, getting feedback, uh, you know, finding out what, they, what their real pain point is, um, you know, why they would like storage. A lot of them won't know. And that's, that's part and parcel with this, Leading, you know, it's it's the, the, one of the other things in business. You know, there's only eight phrases you need to know or something uh, about business. One, one is that um, if Henry Ford had gone around asking farmers what they wanted, they would say, "I'd like a stronger horse that ate less." You know, you know, not a tractor. Uh, and, and so, you you have you know, and I know there's things like Steve Jobs with the same kind of idea, but um, so you you. You have to lead a little bit and realize that you have a vision. I think the thing is to create a vision. Uh, it, you, you know, we, we envision uh, storage on the grid this way, you know, and then talk to people. It may not be exactly what happens. That doesn't really matter. The, what matters is that you have a vision, you march, you talk to people. And, uh, you know, another one of the phrases that I really like is... Uh, as uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who was a general commander during World War II, uh, who said um, that no battle has ever been won according to plan and no battle has ever been won without a plan. Okay, so you need a plan. One of the tricky things in the whole thing is how, is how to adjust your plan, and, and that's intuition more than anything. But I think just creating, getting the vision out there and trying to validate it as much as possible with uh, potential customers is is what you want to do, and and find out the price points that make sense. Are you, you know, uh, you you know you, you want to find out if if your storage idea, uh, you know, costs uh, four thousand dollars a kilowatt hour, and the customers are saying, you know, I really like fifty, uh, then you know you got a real problem. You know, and the sooner you figure that out, the better. But uh, so I'm wandering around a little bit, but yeah. And no, the so other other two questions the, about what were they? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, one was about how to how to stay the course and have reasonable growth when when things are oh booming. when things are you know and then the last one on hardware uh, hardware right yeah. right so the, that's a funny thing because um, you know that the they're always fond of plotting this hockey stick graph of the industry taking off and uh, uh, and people go ooh uh, but. If you plot it on an exponential semi-log plot, it's actually pretty much of a straight line. 
it grew exponentially at the same, more or less, there were some ups and downs, but it grew kind of exponentially the whole time. So that the upshot of it is it always looked like a fast-growing industry. It, you know, it wasn't like it took off in 2008. It, you know, you could say, oh, it took off in 2007. No, it took off in 2005. No, it took off in 2000. I mean, because it was always uh, had this heavy growth rate. So we always felt that um, we were in a fast-growing industry ever since um, roughly 1990 and um, when uh, the Japanese uh, uh, Million Roos program took off. So uh, the... It, it, and, and so you're in an exponential growth phase always in a, in a, in a beginning industry. And that means that, uh, uh, like, you have to, if you're growing 50% a year, you have to uh, secure 50% more glass, if that's what you need for your modules. You have to procure 50% more of everything. But uh, the next year, you've got to procure another 50%, you know. And, but as, as that happens, you're already bigger, and you have more procurement people, so it's, it, you know, I, it, it, it is this, you know, I don't want to get too mathematically complex, but it's, it's this sort of scaling thing where it, uh, it always looks the same as you go along. And advice yeah. for startups that are in hardware? In hardware, that's a tough one. I think, um, you, you know, uh, because we were in hardware, right? Um, the... Um, First off, you you, ha you should um, give yourself some gold stars for doing it. Uh, and uh, secondly, um, you know it's uh, it it means um, it means uh, thinking about things in a, a, as an engineer would think, as the way I would put it, like uh, manufacturability, sourceability of, of parts. Uh, you know, how can we uh, ramp this? Uh, uh, you know, a good example, not to pick on, on Dan, but Sugar, but, uh, you know, when they ramped Next Tracker, they had uh, uh, steel pressers lined up in the Midwest to crank these things out, um, and they were ready to go. And so it wasn't a big deal. Uh, it's... Um, I think, you know, it means an extra layer of difficulty in the sense that there's a huge logistics component, there's a huge qualification component, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a making your customers comfortable with reliability, there's uh, all of the manufacturing aspects, the quality control aspects, um, which are tricky, uh, and, um, and so... You certainly, that's an area where, you, you know, as, as you build a company, you need to bring in new skills along the way, you know, uh, maybe some accounting skills or something. Uh, but if you're doing manufacturing, um, I would put a lot of time on trying to find the right people that, that are know how to um, deal with the kind of problems your particular thing is going to face, whether it's electronic contract manufacturers. You know, if you've never dealt with one of those, that'd be scary. You know, I'd want somebody in there who had knew how to deal with Flextronics or something like that. So, um, uh, so it's probably that the, the key is the, is the team bringing the manufacturing team together, bringing the uh, uh, the right quality person in, uh, and the manufacturer head of manufacturing should probably do that. Um, uh, so it's it, it's an extra layer of um, difficulty. On the other hand, I mean, software. So you know, anybody can do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's rewards. Yeah. All right, then. Go ahead. Do you have no. something? No? No, I was just uh, swigging away on my beer. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. All right. With that, thank you so much for joining us for the inaugural What It Takes featuring clean energy luminary Dick Swanson. And join us um, outside on the roof deck for some more beer. Uh, we'll kick you out shortly, but not, not right away. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to announce at each What It Takes, we'll announce 
next month's what it takes. What it takes is going to happen third Wednesday of every month, um, same time, same place. And so next month, speaking for the first time publicly about the bankruptcy is the former CEO of Sungevity, Andrew Birch. So that will sell out very quickly. If you enjoyed this, get your tickets for that as soon as they are online. We'll make that available by the end of this week. And let's give Dick Swanson a round of applause. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.